Here's 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. I do not think that God meant us to have hopeless lives because we have some instant happen to us in childhood that's negative. God says we've been established, anointed, and sealed. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. We've not been given... Oh, it's, it's coming in front of the, the screen here. Let's get that. Okay, okay. We've not been given a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1, 7. We are born of God, and the evil one cannot touch us. 1 John 5, 18. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm, Ephesians 2, 6. And one of my favorite verses, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. All things, all things. You mean even that thing in my past? Even that thing, especially that thing. The worse it is, the better the opportunity for God to show his glory through it. So ACEs first began to be discussed around uh, 1998 when Vincent Folletti, a physician from Kaiser Permanente, did a complex weight management program. Women were losing up to 300 pounds in a year on his program. And then he noted something. Some of the clients that were the most successful at weight loss suddenly began to gain the weight back faster than physiologically possible. And this was a mystery to him. He, he didn't know how that happened. So he started interviewing the clients. And he would hear the same kind of stories over and over again. Some event happened in their present that reminded them of some tragedy from their childhood, and they would immediately gain all that weight back, kind of a protection, a layer of fat around them. Or maybe they'd take up smoking and smoke four packs a day and make a cloud of smoke to keep people away. So uh, Vincent Folletti thought this was very interesting. So he and Bob Onder from the CDC interviewed over 17,300 Kaiser patients in confidential surveys and interviews. And they had the advantage of being able to look at the Kaiser charts up to 20 years of health records and see what kind of adult illnesses did people have who had high trauma scores in childhood. So the quiz that they gave was a 10-point quiz. And you can go on the internet to aces.com or .org and, and download the 10-point quiz of adverse childhood experiences. Or there's a wonderful talk by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, which is a 16-minute TED Talk. If you Google TED Talk ACEs, it'll probably come up as the most frequently viewed talk that explains ACEs, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. And the 10 things on the quiz were uh, three kinds of abuse, physical, emotional and sexual. So did someone hit you? you know, were you emotionally abused? Uh, were you sexually abused? Two kinds of neglect, physical or emotional. Did you not have enough clothing or food as a child? Or um, were you totally unloved? Um, uh, five kinds of household dysfunction. Did you have a parent with mental illness? Did you have a relative who was incarcerated in prison or in jail? Was your mother treated violently? Did one of your parents have substance abuse, alcohol or, or narcotics or some methamphetamine or some kind of substance that kept them from being available to, to effectively parent you? And were your parents separated or divorced while you were a child? So all this is questions of what happened to you under age 18. The study population was a Kaiser middle-class population. 70% of the people studied had at least some or all of college. Uh, so it wasn't the ghetto neighborhood where I grew up. The scores would be much higher there, or in Butte County where I live now. The, the scores would be much higher. But in that population, 64% of the people had at least one adverse childhood experience. 28% of the people surveyed reported physical abuse, and 21% reported sexual abuse. The other thing they noticed was the ACEs cluster. If you have one ACE, 
40% of the people that report one ace will have two or more. And one in eight people actually had four or more aces. Not uncommon in my practice in Butte County to have patients that have between six and 10 aces. And aces have a dose response curve to disease. The more aces you have in childhood, the more adult disease you have. And uh, the postulate is that when a child is traumatized uh, with an adverse childhood experience, their body puts out this cortisol and catecholamine response that puts them on alarm. They get post-traumatic stress disorder. And those children are always hypervigilant. They can't really study or learn. So they have disrupted neurodevelopment, social, emotional, and cognitive impairment. And some of them have adoption of health risk behaviors that are negative like smoking and drinking and inactivity and uh, eating too much. Uh, they get more disease, more disability, more social problems, even if they don't adopt those negative health risk behaviors. And they're likely to have an early death. Uh, this slide shows that if you have six or more ACEs, you're likely to die 20 years early, around age 60 instead of around age 80. I'd like to just go through one case study that was presented by Dr. Allison Jackson uh, in a TED talk. It just illustrates what we're talking about with adverse childhood experiences. At age 18 months, uh, Henry uh, was in the household where neighborhood watch volunteers heard a drunk dad yelling. But the neighborhood watch volunteers said, oh, that's not really our business. At age two and a half, his preschool teacher noted that he was very aggressive in class and his mom had a bruised eye. But again, they thought, we're, we're about teaching preschool. We're not about what goes on at home. At age five, Henry had a life-changing negative event. He was standing upstairs in his house, and he saw his dad towering over his mom. His mom was in a pool of blood. Four big police officers broke down the door, took his dad away to jail, took his mom to the hospital, put Henry in a squad car with a little bag of his belongings, and he went to a strange place where he knew no one. He entered the foster care system. Over the next few years, between the ages of 6 and 11, Henry did poorly in school. He developed a huge case file of misdemeanor notes from school. He did poorly in the foster care system. And even when his parents lost their parental rights, no one wanted to adopt this difficult youth. At age 11, Henry's foster dad was threatening to uh, hit his foster mom, and it brought up this surge of a memory, because that had happened to him at age five, and he wasn't ever gonna let that happen to someone again. So he slugged the foster dad and was taken away to juvenile detention. Now, I see the Henrys in my family medicine practice. And I, I see them, they may have high blood pressure and morbid obesity and alcoholism and tobacco use and maybe COPD, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease from their smoking. You know, in their early 40s, they develop diabetes from their morbid obesity and at around age 50, they have a heart attack. And around age 60, they have a fatal stroke and die 20 years earlier than other people. So just kind of a, a cap off summary there are uh, five behaviors on this chart and, and 10 physical and mental health things, I'll just read through them, uh, that happen after a child is abused, they may happen in adulthood. That is, lack of physical activity, maybe they're afraid to go out if they have a bad neighborhood. Um, they may smoke, they may drink, they may use drugs, they miss a lot of work. Um, they may have severe obesity, diabetes, depression, suicide attempts, sexually transmitted diseases because they're looking for love in all the wrong places, uh, heart disease from all that stress, that cortisol and catecholamine response, cancers, uh, strokes, the, the lung diseases, and broken bones, more broken bones in adulthood. So, you know, the first alcohol use it, by age 14 is increased two to three times if you have a high ACE score. Uh, each ACE score increased the likelihood of early drug use two to four times. So if you have an ACE score of seven, you're talking about 14 to 28 times more chance of being a drug addict than somebody has no ACEs. And if you compare a group of people with no ACEs to a group with five or more ACEs, 
the, the group with five or more ACEs are seven to 10 times more likely to report illicit drug use. Obesity is much more common, particularly if uh, someone has been physically or verbally abused. They weigh about uh, 10 pounds more and have a 1.4 relative risk of being obese, having a BMI of over 30. Sexual risk goes up. There's an increased chance of a girl having sex by age 15 and thus unintended pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases like we mentioned. Autoimmune diseases go up. You probably all know someone, uh, maybe you have an autoimmune disease yourself, uh, thyroiditis, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, there, there's so many autoimmune diseases. And compared to people with no ACEs, persons with two or greater ACEs have 100% increased of rheumatic diseases related to the autoimmune system. And heart attacks, this one really grabbed me because ACEs correlate more powerfully to heart attack risk than the traditional risk factors like high blood pressure and cholesterol and smoking. So there's, high, there's more liver disease, there's more cancer, there's more depression, there's more mental illness, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidality. This chart shows the suicidality. In the, in the population with no ACEs, about one in a hundred of those people may attempt suicide sometime in their life. But in the population with three ACEs, 10 out of 100 people attempt suicide sometime in their life. And if you go up to seven ACEs, 20 out of 100 people attempt suicide. Highly related to adverse childhood experiences. So why should we have conversations about adverse childhood experiences? Well, Dr. Vincent Folletti said in one of his lectures that if a, if a physician would give that 10-point quiz in their office, it takes about three minutes, and only ask the patient one question. How do you think these things that happened in your childhood are affecting your current health? He said that that cut their disease symptom scores by up to 30%. Now, I have not seen a study you know, proving that, but it, it seems to me that I've been doing this in my practice because it doesn't take much time. And, and it, 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 for some patients, it's like popping a pimple. Nobody's ever asked them what they've gone through. And, and we've been asking the wrong questions. What's wrong with you? That's not the right question. The right question is, what have you survived? What's made you a more compassionate and wise, uh, strong person? So it's an opportunity for patients to share their stories. And it's an opening for spiritual care and better health choices. So we can do this with our friends and our contacts, too, just listening to their stories. So you can ask questions, things like, what gives you hope? What gives you meaning, comfort, strength, peace, love, connection? We know that connection is the cure to addiction. In our medically-assisted treatment program at uh, Feather River Tribal Health, where I'm the medical director, we don't kick people out when they backslide on their drugs or their alcohol. We increase the contact time. We have up to five hours a day of massage and uh, exercise classes and a therapy pool and uh, you know, behavioral health and group therapy and private therapy. And so if, if they're messing up, they need more connection. So when you listen to people's story, listen compassionately, listen with both ears and your heart, and keep it confidential. And remember that their story doesn't define them. So you might ask them some spiritual care questions. Do you have any spiritual support system? Has that ever been a part of your life? Was there a spiritual community when you were growing up? Um, and what was that like for you? Because if a child was in a church where the pastor was molesting them, they likely have a negative picture of God. And if they had a father who was mean and violent, they're, they're not going to see God as a loving father. And one of the best things we can do is just really love people because we're an example of God to them when they can't find God yet. Um, and I might ask them, uh, do you pray? And does prayer help you? Would you like me to pray with you now? One of my favorite texts is God saves our tears in his bottle and writes them in his book. He records our wanderings. And now oftentimes, if I have a patient who's in distress or a friend that's in distress, I'll write this text down on a little sticky note 
and give them one of my little bottles. They're cheap online. My son brings them back from Egypt when he's a missionary there. But um, it's a comforting, many patients will just cry and hug me when I, when I give them this verse. I'll, I'll ask them, do you like poetry? And if they say yes, I'll read them that poem. So if you talk about ACEs, you also need to talk about resiliency. And resiliency is how you, back, how you bounce back from the traumas. How do you survive and how do you get victorious after the trauma? And there's a couple websites, aces2high.org, A-C-E-S-T-O-O-H-I-G-H.org, and resiliencyquiz.com. Um, when I think about resiliency, my poster child is uh, the very beautiful and professional and talented Elizabeth Smart. She's a harpist. She runs ministries uh, to protect women and children. She's very active. Uh, she's a mom and a wife. Um, Elizabeth Smart was abducted when she was 14 years old on June 2002 from her quiet home in Utah and kept as a prisoner for nine months and horribly emotionally and physically treated. And when she was uh, released at the end of that nine months, her mother said to her, these people have stolen nine months of your life. Don't, they don't deserve a moment more. And so Smart said she lives by her mom's advice to move on and find happiness. She's making the conscious choice to define herself by who she's become rather than by what happened to her. It's not what happens to us that defines us. So resiliency also involves substituting negative coping strategies with positive ones. So instead of the alcohol and the drugs and the overeating and the smoking and the inactivity, we substitute things like um, outdoor activity and a beautiful nature, exercise massages, hydrotherapy, good Christian music and classical music, prayer, scripture. Oh, scripture is so powerful. Reading it, listening to it, memorizing it. I, I think I had a huge turning point in my spiritual life when I started memorizing Romans 8 with my prayer partner, Arlene. And we would memorize it while we walked and while we drove in the car and, you know, just ask each other verses. And it, it made a huge difference. In Romans 8, you learn how to live by the Spirit instead of by the flesh, making that choice. Uh, so, and we also have a conference that we do a couple times a year, once in Portola and once in uh, uh, Chico, and then they're now starting it in Yuma and Nampa, Idaho, and other places called uh, Hearts Being Healed. And we bring uh, people in for a day and bring speakers who've had traumas in their past and have overcome them by the grace of God and, and show their journeys, how God works with them. And then there's an aftercare program for that, which is a Bible study. Uh, we use the workbook Treasures Out of Trauma by Arlene Hendricks. And if anyone wants to look at that workbook afterwards, they can come up and look at a copy. Um, it's available on Amazon.com, Treasures Out of Trauma. So I want to see these childhood adverse experiences as merely events, moments in time. They're transient, they're temporal, like a glass of water that splashes. Splashes and it's done. Uh, it's not happening to us now. Uh, but the meaning may last a lifetime if we allow it, if we choose it. So we get to choose who we allow to set our meaning. And I would like to propose here that the person who sets our meaning is God. And if you Google, who am I in Christ, it's long pages of verses. You know, God has done so much for us. We don't need to define ourselves by something that Satan meant for evil in our lives. So in the resiliency literature, they talk about a caring adult. If there is a caring adult in a child's life who comes alongside them when they're going through trauma, they have much less negative outcome from the trauma. So I would like to propose that Jesus is our caring adult. And Jesus is not limited in time. He is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He can reach right back into the past. Uh, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. So Satan is a liar. And if you're having negative feelings or ruminations about negative past, that's not coming from God. Satan is a liar. He's come to steal and kill and destroy. 
But Jesus has come that we may have life to the full. So I like to think of uh, Satan's messages as post-it notes. They're just post-it notes, and they have that fairly sticky glue on the back. They don't need to stick. We can ask Jesus to take off all those negative messages. Oftentimes, there's messages attached to the trauma, like, I'm not good enough, it's my fault, I'll never get it right, I'm not lovable, you know, all kinds of negative messages. And we can ask God to remove those negative messages that Satan tries to post to us. So we can choose to base our identity not on the things that happen to us, but on the person that God says we are. So I want to talk about a concept called mountains and molehills. So the mountains are the backdrop of childhood trauma in our past. But the molehills are the things that come up in our daily life that flare up our emotions. So for me, that might be a bad outcome with a patient or I'm stuck in horrible traffic and I'm late, and the Satan wants to define me by that. Oh, you're always late, you know, you're just lazy, or oh, you're not a good doctor, or, you know, Satan always has negative messages he wants to attach, but we don't have to accept those. We can choose God's messages for us. And I, I'll tell you a story that illustrates this well. I took a speaking class with a famous speaker, and I was so blessed by her. She came around at the end of the weekend and whispered in my ear, of all the people here, you have the best chance to be a professional speaker if you want to be one. And I never even thought of speaking in public before. And it was just such a, has anyone ever blessed you? You know, it was just such a, an amazing grace on my, on my head. And um, years later, she came to my church in another state far away, and she wanted to take a picture with all the people who had ever taken her classes before. And she wanted me to stand in front of her in such a way as to make her look thinner. Now, I want to look thinner. So that triggered something in me. And on the way home, I began to sob. Now, I asked myself, you know, and I kind of prayed about this on the way home. I was like, oh, God, why am I crying about the way somebody asked me to stand in a picture? That's out of proportion. Now, out of proportion to the event. So when something happens in our life and it triggers an emotion of anger or distress or fear or sadness that's out of proportion to the event, we need to spend some time with the Lord sitting with that emotion. So our temptation will be to stuff that emotion, to go eat some extra carbs or go, uh, go on Facebook or whatever you know, your typical thing is to, to drown emotions. But instead, sit with that emotion and ask the Lord about it. So I just kind of talked with the Lord, and I said, Lord, what is this about? And, and, and I said, I was expecting her to nurture me, and she used me. You know, I expected her to mother me. And the Lord said to me, that's a little bit of an interesting expectation. You want a strain, near stranger to mother you? I said, well, I don't have a mommy. I lost my mommy the day before my 18th birthday, and then I began to cry. So that, that emotion was really related to the loss of my mother, at age 17, the day before my 18th birthday, my mother committed suicide. And so that little emotion that came up with disappointment of, of the woman was just the molehill in the foreground. But when I asked God to heal that place, I said, okay, what are the messages that the devil's trying to pin on me? He's trying to say, you're not lovable, you don't, you're not worthy of being mothered. Um, what do I say in my word? And that's what I always ask God when I'm in those places. What does God's word say to me? And God's word says that he's like a mother hen that gathers us under his wings. And that when our mother and father forsake us, he lifts us up. That's in Psalms 27. So there's lots of promises about I, I was lovable and God did love me. So um, that was an untruth brought up by that event. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about mountains and molehills. So if something comes up with you and it seems out of proportion... Allow God to use that golden moment to touch the old pain from your past. Think back. When other, what other times have I felt like this in the past? And ask God to heal those places too. So God says we're his children. We're bought with a price. We belong to him. We're redeemed and forgiven of all our sins. We're complete in Christ. We're precious in God's sight. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. 
And I, I will give you my email at the end. If anybody wants all these texts, I will send them to you. <laughs> I'm sure it's hard to take notes of all this, and I'll send the resources to you too. I can't send the PowerPoints because I didn't pay for any of these pictures. I tried to choose free sites, but I can't send the PowerPoints with the pictures. So my story begins uh, about the time of the space race beginning. My dad used to call me Sputnik because I was born the same month that the Russians put up their first uh, satellite. So I, I was born into a family um, with the four M's. My dad was Melvin, so they named me Melinda. And then there was Meldred, my mom, and my younger brother, Mark. Um, my dad was a jovial man, a jack of all trades, master of none. He sequentially had jobs as a paint store owner, a real estate uh, agent. I used to file his listings. Um, he built some houses. He raised llamas. Um, he drove the school bus. He, he was a facilities director for Linwood Academy. He had a, a series of jobs. And his strengths were that he would help anyone who was in need. But his weaknesses were wine and women, which is probably why my parents' marriage only lasted until I was about four, and there was a divorce, first days. So um, my brother and my mom and I lived in Southern California, about 20 minutes from the gang areas. And my mom was a nurse. She had grown up on a farm in Central California. Her mother put her through nursing school by raising chickens and selling the eggs. <laughs> and um, sometimes my brother and I and my mom would go back to the home farm. And my brother and I loved as city kids going to the farm, see how cotton really grows and how the big wasps nests are in the barn and play hide and seek between the hay bales and swim in the irrigation ditches and pick watercress in the stream and ride the tractor. It was, it was a, my grandfather even built us a, a merry-go-round and a swing. Um, we, we just had a lot of fun on the farm with our cousins, but there were also some traumas on the farm. Some things happened in the night that my child brain didn't know how to process and didn't even remember until I was pregnant with my first child. Totally suppressed. And that's very common with trauma memory, for, for memories to be suppressed. Also at age six, I came home from school one day and found half my toys out on the lawn behind my bedroom and the windows wide open. We had interrupted a robbery in progress. And um, I had a group of gang boys knock me down into some eucalyptus leaves behind our house. I can still smell the pungence of the eucalyptus and feel the little prickles on my cheek. And one of the big boys put a sharp knee in my right groin and I passed out. Years later, when my OBGYN was doing a hysterectomy, he said, you know, strangest thing, your right tube and over were like scarred to your uterus like there had been some horrible trauma. Um, I actually missed 44 days of school that second grade year after those things happened. And that's very common for children to go through a lot of illnesses or school absenteeism after they've been through some trauma. Um, I had infectious mononucleosis and tonsillitis and had my tonsils out and chickenpox and measles and mumps and anyway, it, it was a difficult school year. When I was 11, my father locked his car in a garage with the engine running, attempting to commit suicide, and had an explosion and spent three weeks in L.A. County General Hospital with third-degree burns. And shortly after that, when I was in sixth grade, my teacher came into the room at the end of the school day and announced that all the kids were going to go home in private cars instead of on a school bus because the school bus driver had died. Huh, the school bus driver was my dad. So I just dissolved into tears. Turned out later that my dad really had not died. That was a rumor. It was not true. But I went through that experience. And of course, my teacher took me home himself and stopped by Foster Freeze to buy me ice cream to comfort me on the way home. Guess how that plays out. So uh, when I was 17, I took my SAT test downtown LA and I got lost. So I stopped to get directions at a gas station. And in those days, you know, before Google Maps, there was a big map on the wall in the gas station. So I walked in and I was looking at it. And this older man grabbed me strongly from behind and pinned my arms down and started to assault me. I had just taken a self-defense class in high school, the Adventist High School. So I took his little finger and broke it. I heard it snap. And it startled him enough that he let me go, and I was able to go home. But it was traumatic. Um, in high school, my senior year was actually a real high. I, I was given the honor of being valedictorian of my high school class at San Gabriel Academy. 
and I um, got a, I was allowed to play Pathetic Sonata, the first movement uh, for the graduation, and I got a call from the Dean of Men at Pacific Union College asking me to be a secretary in the men's dorm. Can you imagine, 17-year-old girl secretary in the men's dorm? I was like, oh yes. <laughs> so um, it was a high year in many ways, but three months later, I had the low of my life when I was at Pacific Union College on a Friday afternoon, walked up the steps of Groff Hall, the freshman dormitory, walked in the lobby and heard my name mentioned from the monitor's desk, walked over and took the wall phone receiver in my hand, and it was my grandmother saying that my mother had died. And in my brain, I pictured a Mack truck running into her VW Volkswagen, but that's not how it was. She had committed suicide with an overdose of pills, and my brother, who had just turned 15, walked in and found her dead after school. That night, one of the students from the men's dorm heard about my loss and did not want me to be alone. So he came over to the women's dorm and personally escorted me down to the sanctuary for vespers. And as we walk through the double doors into the sanctuary, the organ, pipe organ, and it was swelling, and the congregation was singing four-part harmony of when sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well, it is well with my soul. And it was just God's specific message to me that no matter what I went through in my life, I would never be alone, and he would never forsake me. He was going to go through it with me. So I was... I was startled 30 years later, sitting in my daughter's college church. She was a freshman. I was sitting in the Union College sanctuary. And which song played? Friday night, exactly 30 years later. It is well, it is well with my soul. And the, the tears just started streaming down my cheeks, and my daughter kind of looked at me quizzically. It was like God just kissing my cheek. God will never uh, leave us or forsake us. So I went through college, got my bachelor in science, and went to medical school, uh, got married to a great guy, um, and uh, I took a class in uh, sexual education and counseling. And there was this art show where they had art drawn by kids who'd been assaulted in various ways, and they had this one picture that was a stick figure with green scribble all over it. And my classmates had no clue what the picture meant. But I knew when I saw it, I just had this like stab of, of anxiety. And furthermore, they showed a film, and they had a film with a young woman asleep on a bed in a nearly dark room, and an older man walks into the bedroom, takes off his glasses, and sets them on the bedside table, and the scene fades out. And oh, I had like a panic attack, you know? And, there, and it's interesting because uh, trauma memory is often stored as snippets of, of sounds or feelings or smells or things you saw. Um, I remember one uh, client telling me that whenever she heard a clock tick, it made her have a panic feeling because she associated that with a traumatic event. Um, a regular memory is stored in your frontal lobe where you make your logical processes close to your verbal area, your Broca's area, where you can express those things in a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. But trauma memory is stored in these fragments in the amygdala, the temporal lobe, uh, which is your alarm, alert center, the fear center. And so it's hard to retrieve it with words. Talk therapy doesn't work very well. So in the secular world, they use things like neurobiofeedback and EMDR and yoga and massage and those kind of things. But I postulate that we should be using those methods that I talked about before, which is scripture memorization and music and exercise, gardening and being out in nature and the massage and the hydrotherapy. And I, I'd love to see somebody do a study that, that shows scriptural methods of healing. So what happened to me is I'd always been a very logical person. You know, I went through college and medical school and family practice residency, and I was teaching in a family practice residency, and I was very logical. And suddenly, at age 30, I'm pregnant with my first child, and I begin to have illogical things happening to me. I, when my husband's on call as a surgeon, I'm afraid to go to bed alone, and I leave all the lights blazing in the house. You know, postpone my bedtime inordinately because I'm afraid of the dark. 
and I'm crying a lot more. And during my pregnancy, I gained at least 67 pounds. I started standing on the scale backwards because I didn't want to know. I said, don't tell me, just write it in your chart. <laughs> so um, I was having nightmares, nightmares where I was being stabbed. And um, just, it, it was just a crazy time for me because I was a very logical person. I started keeping a notebook uh, with a little flashlight and a pen by side my bed and I would write down the dreams and I would pray over them and I would search scriptures to, to find a way out of this uh, for healing. So um, after my beautiful son was born, I determined I was going to use, lose this about 70 pounds, whatever it was, and I began jogging faithfully in Loma Linda to the diet center, following the 1100 calorie very healthy diet and I was successfully losing all the weight until one day, a couple guys in a red pickup truck slowed down and wolf whistled at me. Now, there have been times in my life when I might have considered a compliment to be whistled at, but that day, it was traumatic. Like, I just fell apart, you know, I was just sobbing. And, and I got to the diet center and the diet counselor was kind of confused about what was going on, but I knew exactly what was going on. I was feeling unsafe when my body was attractive with normal curves and I was feeling vulnerable to assault. And I was stuffing the old pain of the traumas with food. And none of those comfort foods are on the 1100 calorie diet center diet. So I wanna make a point here that's one of the most important points of this lecture, and that is we as human beings try to push down negative emotions. And we might use overwork or alcohol or methamphetamine or narco or anxiety medicine or Facebook or novels or television, internet, you know, something um, to fill that, that deep wounded place. But only God can touch that deep wounded place. So it's really important for us to go to God instead of to all that other stuff and ask him to heal that place. So at that point, I went into counseling, group therapy and private therapy and a lot of scripture study, and I felt depressed. I, I felt emotionally bruised from head to toe as a whole bunch of memories were coming up from my childhood. And I was just, lots of tears. I felt like I was walking through a black tunnel or I was in a black pit, and it was a huge emotional struggle for me just to fake it to be a family doctor and go to work like normal. I was working about half time because my baby was still a little young and I would leave him with grandma and run off to work and I would have to wash my tearful face four times before I got to work and then I would sob all the way home. So when my baby weaned himself, he was a very active, curious kind of kid and, and so he weaned himself a little bit early, around nine months old and I handed him to my mother-in-law and my husband who were very loving and capable and went away to the beach for about three days to try to solve this emotional crisis I was going through with all these old trauma memories. And I stormed up and down that beach. I ranted and raged and screamed and cried. And I said, God, how could you allow these things to happen to an innocent child? If I were God, I would never allow those things to happen. Have you ever said anything like that to God? Anyway, I was pretty mad at God. And I, I just expressed that anger. And um, I'm, I'm reminded of a poem, which is the Footprints on the Sand poem. It says, one night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times, there were only one. During the lowest times of my life, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said, Lord, you promised me you would always walk with me. Why, when I needed you the most, would you leave me? And the Lord replied, my precious child, I love you and would never leave you. The times when you've seen only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. So that weekend at the beach, I began reading some books. I read Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. I read Freeing Your Mind from the Memories That Bind by Fred and Florence Littauer. I read Healing for Damned Emotions by David Siemens. And I had already read um, a Door, of, Door of Hope by Jan Frank, which is an excellent starter book if anybody has trauma like this coming up, Door of Hope by Jan Frank. And if I were going away to the beach now, I would probably take The Hidden Half of the Gospel by Paul Conniff, 
and Treasures Out of Trauma by Arlene Hendricks, and The Ministry of Healing by Ellen White. Anyway, I started reading these books, and I just clung to the text inside the books. And I just clung to the truths from Scripture. And my, the turning point in my restoration really began as I came to see Jesus present in my pain, that he had not abandoned me, and I saw his promises to use all things for good. And that was hard for me to believe. How could you use that for good? I caught a glimmer of hope and healing. And gradually over my three days at the beach, my rantings and accusations that God was either absent, uncaring, powerless, or unfair gave way to truths from Scripture. And I have to be honest with you. At first, it was just by total faith and grit that I chose that I was going to believe Scripture above my feelings because my feelings were so powerfully negative and abandoned. So it took about 30 years, to be honest, before the feelings and the faith really aligned. So the, the clincher for me was that God allowed his very own beloved son to suffer. And, and if God would allow his own beloved son to suffer, might he also use my sufferings for his eternal glory? And I thought, he could use my sufferings. Maybe he would. He will. He will use my sufferings for his glory. It, it was a journey. God says, my thoughts and my ways are not like yours. Just as the heaven is higher than the earth, my thoughts and my ways are higher than yours. We might un not understand some of this stuff till we get to heaven. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's transient, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17. So what was Paul's light momentary afflictions? It probably didn't feel light and momentary to him any more than your trials feel light or momentary to you. Um, he was in prison, beaten five times with 39 lashes. He was near death, three times beaten with rods. He was hungry, thirsty, cold, three times shipwrecked, adrift at sea, was going blind, he had danger from rivers and robbers and Gentiles and political stuff in the church. You know, people gossiped about him, you know. Let's read this verse together. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Read with me. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are eternal. Things that are unseen are eternal. Yeah, you know, there was a time in my life, and that weekend on the beach was one of them, where I would have done anything to just erase the past. I didn't even want that to be true. I remember my poor husband, you know, he, he married a woman who had no memory of any previous trauma, and then I'm coming up with all this stuff, and, and, and I remember telling him, I don't want any of this to be true. Believe me, I'm not making it up, you know. Um, but now, I wouldn't erase a second of anything that God has given in my life for his purpose. Because his purpose is to use our struggles and our tribulations and the things that happen to us for his glory. Diamonds, under uh, coal under pressure becomes diamonds. So those struggles we go through, they're what allow those facets of, of the diamond, the God's glory, to shine through. And it's people that have gone through a lot that have the most story, the most to, to tell. And the, and the best opportunity to help other people who've been through those things. So here's the picture. God's eternal weight of glory is in the heavy side of the balance scale. And everything else is atmospheric dust, fluff. <laughs> Remember my favorite verse? I had to answer the question for myself, does God care about me? That was my crucial question. And if you have friends who are going through this, the most important question you can answer for them is that you care, because then they might come to believe that God cares. 
God saves our tears in his bottle and writes them in his book. He records our wanderings, all the twists and turns that our life takes. I begin to find my identity in God's promises that I'm precious in his sight. He rejoices over me with singing. He delights in me. I'm his treasure and his chosen vessel. Those are all scripture verses. God is good. Psalm 71, 14 to 24, I've summarized it here. I will tell people how good you are. I will tell about all the times you saved me. Too many to count. You let me see troubles and hard times, but you'll give me new life. You'll lift me up from this pit of death. And I'll tell you, there was times when that, in that nine months where I went through the, all those trauma retrievals, memory, that I felt like I was in the pit of death. Psalms 34, 17 to 20 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Does that mean we'll never have troubles? No, it means that God's going to come in that place, the inside of us, the part of us that is with Jesus, and it will, the beginning of eternity uh, is, is always fine. My prayer partner's been through a few health things this last few years, a, a joint replacement and a couple bad concussions. And when I ask her, how are you doing? Her stock answer is, the part of me that matters is just fine. <laughs> Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So we are going to have afflictions. The Bible says that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And I love that last sentence because it says to me that even with his own son, who was suffering all things as our example and our mediator and a high priest, even then God was metering what he went through. He predicted he would not break a bone, and he didn't. Isaiah 30, 20 to 26, the Lord might give you sorrow and pain. The Lord might give you sorrow and pain. I grew up expecting that God was going to save me from everything. Somehow those little stories in Sabbath school, what I heard as a child was that God would never allow me to go through any suffering. And I don't tell those kind of stories in Sabbath school. I tell them that God's going to be with you when you go through the hard times. I tell them the story of the, the three Hebrews in the fire, and they went into the fiery furnace, but Jesus was in there with them. And when they came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. So God is your teacher, and he will not continue to hide from you. There are times when we feel like God's hiding and we can't see him. So we really have to cling by faith to God's word. You'll see your teacher. You'll hear a voice guiding you. You'll cast away idols as a menstruous cloth. Remember all those things that we try to put in that, that empty spot? Uh, whatever your thing is that you replace God with. Um, we're going to cast those idols away. Like, like an old menstrual pad, and we're going to allow the Lord to bandage his broken people and heal the hurts from their wounds. Isaiah 30, 20 to 26. Psalms 27, 5, For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. So one day, I, fairly recently, I was kind of confronting God about that, that episode where the gang knocked me down and put the sharp knee in my groin and I passed out. And I was like, God, how come you weren't there with me? How come you didn't protect me during that time? And God said, I was there with you. I was your anesthesiologist. I put you to sleep the same way that I put Adam to sleep to take the rib out for Eve. I was with you every second of that time. Now, psychologists and scientists call that dissociation. But I have zero memory of any pain from a trauma that was so severe that my gynecologist, 50 years later, found a massive scar tissue. So God does not forsake us. And sometimes we find his interventions in, a, in an interesting way. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. You'll walk through those rivers, but they won't overflow you. They won't overwhelm you. The part of you that is with God in your heart will be just fine. You know, it is well, it is well with my soul. When you walk in the fire, you shall not be burned like those three Hebrews, nor shall the flame kindle on you. So there's so many stories of suffering in the Bible, and I don't have time to tell them all today, but I want to highlight just, you know, the, the last three chapters of Job say who God is. And when we're struggling with something from old trauma, we need to know who God is. And so really spend time in those last few chapters of, of Job 
and also the story of Naaman's maid, that little girl who was abducted from her home, just like Elizabeth Smart, taken away to a, a foreign land, she's taken from Israel to Syria, and working in the household of army captain Naaman, and when he got leprosy, she was a little missionary. She told her, her boss's wife, you know, there is a true God of heaven, and his prophet Elisha knows how to, to obtain those blessings of miraculous healing. You know, your husband needs to go see Elisha. And he did, and he washed seven times in that dirty river, Jordan, and he brought back a wheelbarrow full of dirt from Israel to, to Syria to build an altar to the true God. And, and Naaman became a missionary too. So did God use that little girl's suffering, her parents' suffering of missing her, of her abduction? He did. He used it powerfully for good. It became a witness to so many people. So, you know, Joseph, who lingered in prison for two or three years, and Esther, who was an orphan, but God uh, used her for such a time as this. You know, and definitely the, the stories of the cross, the last few chapters of the desire of ages, so powerful. So our suffering has a purpose. It is not wasted. Military trainees and football players, they'll go through great suffering and training to be the elite. They choose that. Uh, surgeons, you know, my husband's a surgeon. He, he cuts people, and it hurts to cut somebody and take out that bad appendix or gallbladder or cancer. But he does it for a purpose. He puts them through some pain for a purpose. And I, I believe that's how God is with us. The uh, text, 1 Peter 1.7, says... Our difficulties are valuable. Trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor at Christ's return. Proverbs 17.3, The crucible is for refining silver and the smelter for gold. But the one who purifies hearts by fire is the Lord. So he's purifying our hearts. He's making us more like him. He's making us fit for heaven and fit to share in other people's lives who have been through things. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice, be happy, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, Ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. And I begin to think about this issue of suffering. Could it be that Christ allows us to share in his sufferings as a very intimate privilege to come alongside him to a hurting world? James 1, 2-4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and lacking in nothing. You know, when the silver refiner is boiling that silver to exactly the right temperature so that that molten liquid reflects his image perfectly, and then he stops. He doesn't overboil it. Isaiah 61.3 says, I will take away their sadness, and I will give them the oil of happiness. I'll take away their sorrow, and I'll give them celebration clothes, a wedding dress. Then the old cities that were destroyed will be rebuilt. Do you have any old cities that need to be rebuilt? I love this picture of a stone wall with lots of flowers in front of it. Those ancient ruins would be made new as they were in the beginning. In the past, other people shamed you and said bad things to you. You were shamed much more than any other people. So in your land, you'll get two times more than other people. You'll get the joy that continues forever. Then I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, Joel 2.25. You'll have plenty to eat and be fully satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has performed wonders specifically for you. And my people will never be ashamed. So would I rather have a life that has zero tribulations, zero struggles, zero stuff I go through, and I have no relationship with the Lord? Or would I rather have a life where God has allowed me to suffer some things, but he has shown me his grace and his glory through it, and it performed wonders specifically for me? 
So there is a, a way to deal with our old childhood trauma, and I want to especially highlight this, 2 Timothy 2.22. It's a three-part thing. The first part is now flee from useful lusts. So whatever those things are that you're using to replace God, flee from that. Number two is pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So run toward the Lord. That's the prayer and the Bible study and the, the music. With those, this is number three, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Get yourself a good prayer partner, a good prayer group, a Bible study group. So this is the Scouse simplified version. Okay, let's read this one together. 2 Timothy 2.22. We'll read it out loud. Run away from youthful lusts. Run toward righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Run with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And that is the key. 2 Timothy 2.22 is the way to, to get through this stuff. So we want to live... Romans 8, memorize Romans 8, it's very powerful. We want to live in the flesh. I mean, in the spirit, not in the flesh. Live in the spirit. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Why would we turn to all these other things instead of to God? God's offering us a holiday at the sea, and he's offering us eternity in heaven. So um, Galatians 3.25, if we're living now by the Holy Spirit, let us follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Isaiah 55.3 says, come to me and live. I will promise you the eternal love and loyalty that I promised David, God's beloved. And 1 Peter 2.2 Fill up on God. This is the part two of that verse. Fill up on God like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you grow in respect to salvation. And then this is the running with those who have a pure heart, being in a Bible study group. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. This is a conditional problem, pro promise. If you want to be glorified with Christ, you need to be willing to suffer with him. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is a personal process. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us or shame down because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So one of my favorite songs, this is the end of my presentation, and I have a lot of favorite songs. This morning I was listening to Glorious Runes, and um, I love the song Mercy Me, Even If, uh, and um, Mer Wonderful Merciful Savior by Scylla. Um, but Cornerstone's one of my favorites because it says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Remember that first verse, all things at all times. Yes, I have a question. What advice would you give um, parents who've adopted a child that, gone, that has gone through this, but we have not ourselves? And how do we deal with that? That is a great question. I think those children really need an adult who is skilled in Christian counseling and skilled in dealing with old trauma uh, to walk with them and uh, possibly a group with other kids who've been through tough stuff. Um, I, I would 
um, really direct them to scripture, you know, and I would use lots of outdoor activities with them because, like we said, the trauma memory doesn't heal well with just talk therapy. So play therapy, you know, getting out and hiking and swimming and being, you know, camping and doing a lot of activities. Um, that combined with the scripture and the music, um, massage, hydrotherapy, you know, all, um, I would use those modalities, yeah. Because it, it, trauma memory does not respond well to just talk therapy. Remember, it's, it's not stored in the frontal logic lobe. It's not a logical thing. When they erupt, it may have been some little trigger, you know, that reminded them of old trauma. Anybody else have a question? Thank you. Do you help uh, a loved one who was exposed to porn at a young age? Um, not intentionally, but it was, and it's suppressed. These very same methods would work, possibly also being part of an accountability group, uh, like a 12-step group where they have a sponsor who's, who understands that pornography problem, um, but because uh, that can be helpful, and, and possibly having um, programs on their computer that... Uh, alarm their accountability person if they get into a site that is um, reminiscent of the old pornography. And sometimes it's not an intentional for looking for pornography. Sometimes it's just ads and things that come up, but it provides a chance to discuss that. You know, is this a temptation for you? How are you in your relationship with the Lord? Just remember that connection is the cure to addiction. So for any addiction, you know, more connection, and connection with people who understand where you've been. My question was, do you help, it was traumatic for them, but how do you help them with the, the pain from that? Not that they're addicted to it. Right. Um, some, some people, and, I, and you'd have to research this for yourself, as my understanding is that EMDR is just an eye motion uh, therapy similar to our REM sleep. And people that do EMDR, if you can find a Christian counselor that does EMDR, they, they just distract the person's eyes with back and forth motion to a light or fingers. And then the person focuses in on that traumatic memory. And it's very successful for specific trauma memory healing, EMDR. Anybody else? Questions? I just got, went through it. EMDR, and um, what happened is we had a very bad car accident. I couldn't even get in the front seat of the car for two and a half years. And I went through EMDR. It was wonderful. It really helped because now I'm driving. I've even driven two hours in the car. So I'm very happy I went through it. Good. It, it specifically is directed to trauma memory, you know, a specific memory, and that's what it's best for. And, and, it, and all it is is distracting your eye motion, so you're distracted with a task while you're thinking about that trauma event and processing. You don't even have to tell the person that is your counselor about it. So it's, it's, a, it's a confidential thing. You're in control of it. It's, you know, your brain waves. You can pray before you walk in there and pray while you're doing it. And it, I, I think it's probably a good tool. Um, yeah, yeah. She used tapping. Anybody else have questions? Any questions? Besides reading for yourself, uh, self-help, how do you know if you need more than uh, help than that? I would say that depends on your internal landscape, how you're feeling. If you're still having a lot of fear, a lot of anger, irritability, you know, your family members might be a better judge of whether you need more help than even yourself. So if your family members are saying, hey, we think you ought to see a counselor and get some more help. Because um, sometimes there's stuff that's just a little too hard for us. We walk through these, these traumatic events and we just need to talk to somebody. And I found that both the group and the private therapy helped. There's a different kind of healing that happens in those two places. Because in the, in the groups, you hear yourself saying to somebody else the messages that you should be telling yourself. Some people call that NYSA therapy, N-Y-S-A, and I don't have much experience with that, but where you tell somebody else what, 
the third person what you need to hear. <laughs> I am a teacher, and I think I know the answer, but <laughs> when a child has seen something happen, not directly to them, but seen something, they interpret it the same way as if it had happened to them, correct? That's absolutely true. That's why it's one of the questions on the A scoring tool is if you saw a parent violently treated. It, it said mother in the original studies, but now they've changed it to parent. You know, or I think it's the same if you have anybody in your family. There's a book called uh, 1,000, 1,000 Blessings, or but it's by Liza. I'm trying to remember the name of the author. Anyway, it, it it talks about a young woman who lost her little sister. I think she was three years old. She was killed traumatically, and that loss was very very difficult for her. And part of her therapy was starting with gratitude, thanking God for little things that happened all day long until she got to a thousand. I was wondering if you counsel with young children. Um, that may be gaming, like I was reading an article on the Fortnite and how it's affecting young elementary age kids. Do you ever have to counsel them? Because just like the teacher said, what they see is real, even though it's not reality. So are you, um, do you have any experience with that? I don't deal with a whole lot of kids in my current practice. I have a mostly geriatric and administrative practice right now. But I'm sure there are people that would be trained for that and good at that. Um, I would treat that like any other addiction. They need more connection. They need more body physical activity time, more outdoor time, more scripture time, more music time, massage, hydrotherapy, you know, all those things we mentioned. <laughs> all right, well, thank you very much for your attention. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.